Company culture can make or break individuals and careers. Just think about the most toxic organization you worked for and compare it to the one where you felt like you thrived and actually enjoyed coming into work every day. Hi everyone, I'm Radka and welcome to the Authenticity Project. Today's episode is about company culture and its role on employee well-being and happiness. So stay tuned. We spend eight hours a day at work, so the type of environment, culture, and values the company we work for has are critical not only to our productivity, but also our mental health when you think about it. I once worked for a micromanaging boss who would literally listen in on every single call I made and always criticized everything I did, from the way I answered the phone to the way I placed stationery on my desk. Needless to say, I quit after about 25 days over a text message, but it taught me a very valuable lesson. And that is that people that I'm surrounded by and the culture I'm exposed to are almost more important than the actual type of work I do. But that's just me. Many studies suggest that employee satisfaction correlates with company productivity and profitability. In other words, happier employees, higher performing teams, greater profitability. And company culture seems to be the glue that sticks these three together. But the way people feel at work and the type of culture they're exposed to didn't matter in the past. According to my next guest, there has been a significant shift in the way we think about company culture in the past 10 years. So stay tuned to listen to my talk with Dominic, who shares his insight on the evolution of corporate culture and how it came to be, what it means today, and how important it is to challenge orthodoxies. Dominic has over 15 years of consulting experience helping clients implement and enhance their corporate strategy and culture, and most recently joined an investment firm in Toronto in a strategic leadership capacity. Just a side note for you, there will be some background noise in the first five minutes of the talk, so just power through. Hi, Dominic. How are you doing? I'm good, Rachel. How are you? Very well, and welcome to the Authenticity Project. I'm glad you could join me today. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm excited about our talk today because I really want to pick your brain on so many different aspects of the corporate world. Um, So as someone who has over, I think, is it over 20 years of experience providing consulting services to clients? um, Yeah, it was it was 15, 15 years of, of consulting uh, after uh, a number of years in industry. Yeah. yeah, definitely very experienced. So I'm curious if you could maybe take me back in time and describe how things were done then versus how we're done now. These days. Back in the prehistoric ages? <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. I meant maybe <laughs> 10 years ago. Um, things in general? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to corporate culture, leadership styles, and uh, maybe yeah, even the way yeah. companies were managed. Yeah, no, it, it, the last um, the last 10, 15 years has seen a, a big shift from what I can tell. We're, we're on the cusp of something bigger that just got accelerated with this COVID situation that we're in. Um, I would say that 10, 15, 20 years ago, 
that people were just starting to glimpse the value of alternative management methods. And by alternative, I mean not the traditional processes and, and mindsets that were born in, out of the industrial revolution and out of assembly line thinking. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was a certain dehumanization of work at some point in history, right? And it, you know, people were just cogs and machines and, and, and managed accordingly. So managed in terms of when they show up for work, when they leave for work, uh, managed in terms of um, how, many, how many characters were they typing on the keyboard. And you'd think that by the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s that people would have you know, put all that behind them because we're, we're more enlightened now. Mm -hmm. But I don't think we were. So I think we just took different forms. Things were made to sound a little bit nicer, but at the end of the day, even today, there's still organizations that care about exactly the minute you show up and the minute that you leave. And even if you get your work done and it's not output, uh, output focused management, right? It's, it's about, did they put in the time? And, and that was still very, very prevalent across most industries, I found. Um, and people were starting to peek out of that. There were certain companies and leaders that, that uh, experimented with different ideas. So one, one prominent chain, and I would say that started to happen in the early 90s, uh, in full force was uh, the balanced scorecard. Explain what it is specifically. Yeah, in a nutshell, is uh, today we take it for granted that we look at measurements beyond financials. We need mm -hmm. to look at different types of input measures that would drive those financials. We look at um, employee engagement. We look at uh, different customer segment performance. So. All those things we take for granted today, uh, I'd say in the 80s, early 90s, was still fresh for other people thinking about. So management meetings would consist of detailed financial statement reviews. And, and very little time was taken to look at how people felt. And did they have the right kind of engagement in the organization? Um, and some companies took advantage of that and, and learned from it and built companies around culture and included how how we do things not just what we do uh -huh. and both of those things mattered but i'd say um when i started my career that was new that was very very new and one of my first jobs was actually helping an organization learn how to use the methodology and, and implementing it across the executive team well, I would hope now people or companies or leaders are more percept, uh, more um, accepting of those ideas. Oh, absolutely. I think over the last uh, decade, there's been a massive change across all of business to look at all the measures in all mm -hmm. the quadrants. And even different methodologies exist that say it doesn't even have to be those four quadrants. In fact, today, the best practice is to actually go beyond that and define the dimensions that matter to your business and actually talk about what are the highest level deliverables across the organization and let's design our own categories. And now to sort of fast forward, I think you mentioned COVID, which I think is, of course, tragic times we live in, but also I think it's a great time for companies to hit the restart button and rethink their business strategy corporate culture, business models, and even the, the very way 
companies are managed um, not only to make it in the post-COVID world, but also to thrive. Uh, mm -hmm. so what would you say the future holds if, for us if leaders are introspective and invested in innovation? There's an innovation imperative is what I would say. So if you're not doing it, then it's to your disadvantage and you, you ignore it at your peril. We've been forced to consider our working models. We've been forced to consider um, even simple things like how do we handle remote work and working from home and what does that cause us to think about? Well, it's caused us to think about a very basic question, which is, does everyone have to be in the office all the time? We just took that for granted. Of course, everyone should have a cubicle and everyone should commute and everyone should do what they've been doing for the last hundred years back to the industrial uh, revolution mentality of be here at this place in time and let me watch you work. Okay. So that's, that's just something we take for granted in terms of working culture. And we shouldn't. Some cases, it's absolutely necessary that you are present. You can't run science experiments from home, for example. You need to be in a lab. So that's fine. Likewise, in a hospital. But when you look at corporate jobs, when you look at the vast majority of, of uh, white collar jobs in particular, and even some of those that are more hands-on, so-called blue collar jobs, not all of them absolutely 100% require physical attendance. And, and that challenges our, our mindset of, well, what have we been doing all these years? Investing tons of money into real estate to house these people. You sit here and go, we just assumed we needed to spend this mass, massive amount of money and didn't challenge it enough. So is it innovation? I, I don't know if it's as much innovation as challenging orthodoxies. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, I understand that, yeah. And so let's challenge all our orthodoxies, which is something we should have been doing anyway. So that is the acceleration that's happened, I think, from what I've seen with our peer companies and and um, everything else that's going on. Now, doesn't fully answer your question about the innovation imperative, because I think that it's not exactly the same thing, which is why I make the distinction. So challenging orthodoxies is one thing, it's the beginning of innovation. And then the question is, what do you do with that realization? And what this crisis has caused us to do, one of the very few but positive side effects of this is not only has it caused us to challenge our orthodoxies, now we're sitting here going, we're actually forced to take action on some of these things. Because mm -hmm. I'm sitting here with empty buildings. Right. And my, bo my board is asking me, why are you paying all this rent for empty buildings? Speaking of, of challenges and and boards. Um, so what's been really on my mind lately is that even today with all those different societal changes over the past few decades in North America and Europe specifically, decisions are still pretty much made by the same group of people. It's a white voice club usually, right? Um, which doesn't really reflect the reality of the workforce population of the 21st century, at least not in mm -hmm. Canada. So what do you think needs to change? What do you think needs to happen in order to have more diverse leadership teams and different voices present? Oh, that's a big question. That is a very big question. Take all the I was time just, you need. <laughs> <laughs> I was just on, I, w I was actually on a call today with some of my colleagues and we were talking about how do we 
have the right kind of conversation in our financial services industry about some of these practices and challenging these orthodoxies mm-hmm. without discrediting our discussion because it would be perceived as a little too avant-garde and you know we're in financial services we're we're not here to be social justice warriors mm-hmm. and there will be those people who have very conservative conservative mindsets uh, and it's largely still run by a lot of of um, those with privilege and it was a very tricky conversation for us because we said we need to get certain points across here to help move the needle and push the culture change forward um, increase at least the awareness of what we're talking about create some space to have some conversation make it okay by giving it a language and and um, setting some of these conversations free and enabling them but where do you stop with a, an industry that is quite traditional mm-hmm. it's, it's one of the most traditional industries in this country yeah uh, and so where do you stop such that it doesn't seem like a social justice war um, or some kind of, of personal cause of a select minority within these organizations now you look at a big bank like the tds and bemos of the world and they can take a slightly different approach there is a stronger focus on um, equality and social justice and, and equity uh, so we're, we're basically saying those societies are starting to move ahead a little more if you look at um, the ceo of of td bank he does not fit the typical profile of some of the other banks. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I believe three out of the five top titled officers of that bank are female, which is significant progress in that organization. So the, the metrics would say that there's, there's progress. Is it enough? Not necessarily because they also happen to be white females. Mm-hmm. It's a good start, yeah. though. <laughs> but it's a great start. And yeah. it's a great start. And it's great to see someone of color and someone who was born in another country leading uh, one of Canada's biggest companies. So I think they have a lot to be proud of. And, and yet, um, you've got a, a very established network of people in this country who... Um, were connected from an early age in their communities by their parents and who their parents knew, which schools they went to. There's a very established path for, for a significant group of people. And that path, while it doesn't define you, it definitely provides you with some advantages. So if you talk about dismantling that, well, let's not dismantle that because that wouldn't be unfair. You have your choice to go to a private school or a public school. You have your choice which community you live in. That's, that is um, part of being free in this country. Well, I don't know. I think I would challenge you on that. You, you don't really sometimes have a choice. If you're, if you're born into poverty, you definitely don't have a choice to go to a private school. No, I agree with you. I, so I'm not, I don't disagree with you on that one. I'm saying you know, for those who happen to have the means right. and suddenly to take it away in – um, as a broad stroke, is is attacking a symptom, not a cause. So, um, I think the 
bigger challenge here is how do we create awareness of what privilege entails? Mm. How, uh, right? So, I mean, how many, how many years, decades, centuries of struggle have those with less privilege um, had against those with privilege? How many of those struggles were clean? How many of those struggles were won? And I would argue that even though there were some temporary wins, like you look at a French Revolution, for example, one would argue that the establishment reestablished itself in just a slightly different way. And and so the, what hasn't happened, and I don't pretend to be a genius on this, but my personal observation is um, what hasn't happened is the introduction of a language and a space just to start a dialogue about what it means to be born a certain way in a certain place with a certain skin color. Um, let's talk about what that means and let's understand each other. I feel like a lot of that is lacking mm -hmm. and, and, and we go straight to the, well, we're going to go Robin Hood on you, <laughs> right? Um, and, and that just, I don't think that's a sustainable way to attack the problem as, as much as I empathize with those who have less um, for the, for a long-term win, there's a significant missing pillar in this, which is comfortable conversation about this topic. And part of the cause of what we're trying to do within our own firm is, is how do we actually create a dialogue? Because I can guarantee you that most of those uh, who are privileged actually don't truly understand the issues. They're, yeah. they're not really making an informed choice about what they continue to propagate. Um, what do you think about sort of mentorship programs? Like maybe even at your, at your firm when you have mentors paired up with mentees. Mm -hmm. uh, can you, do you think that would uh, sort of help with, with the whole problem? Well, it, it's, um, it's definitely a help. There's, there's no denying there's no denying the fact that. Oh, sorry to interrupt. Are you doing the dishes or something? I've been like. I've been oh no! Very... I apologize for that. There's. Uh, I live in a very open concept location, and noises travel far. So I've tried to <laughs> park myself in as quiet a location as possible. Okay, no worries. Yeah. Um. So. I guess where were we on this one? Mentorship. Um, the mentorship piece, without a doubt. I mean, I've had mentors myself, and. They really, good mentors really challenge your way of thinking and your mindsets. So if you can apply that in a, um, in a social justice kind of frame, in, a, in an, uh, an equity type of frame, mm -hmm. and say, look, here's, here's how I succeeded as, a, as an immigrant person. Um, but also, what lessons did I learn from that? Which is, it doesn't mean I have to be exactly like one of those with privilege. It means I can be successful in addition to those characteristics, or maybe exclusive of those characteristics. And here's how we can do it. So I think that's an important thing to do. So I, a firm that I was at before had a mentorship system where a senior leader of 
of, uh, of color or of gender would be paired up with some promising uh, up, up and coming younger leaders. Mm -hmm. And there's absolutely um, strong measurable results showing that people are starting to take more initiative, lots more women rising in these organizations. We're seeing um, a significant change in, in the number of, of women participating in non-traditional female roles. Like typically 30 years ago, it was still, okay, you're, if you're an executive, um, a female executive, you, you'd probably be the chief human resources officer. Mm -hmm. I'd say even 10 years ago, it, it might've been that way. And, and now uh, you, you see CFOs, you see COOs, you see all the Cs. And with with females and some people of color so there's progress and mentorship certainly helps with that but i think there's there's so much more um that's fundamentally missing in the conversation because even people who participate in those programs i'm not sure they're fully educated or aware of you know even what i just brought up earlier is the secret to success to abandon what makes you other in order to join the ranks and be like the those in in power no you just become one of them like i think what makes that's what i'm saying yeah <laughs> what, what makes you yeah. successful is your uniqueness you are who you are and you got where you got because of you not because of the other right. you're trying to sort of mimic and, and so i guess my, my whole hesitation in the answer is mentorship's great but i feel like the mentor needs to be educated and fully aware of, of the dynamics of life. And also it shouldn't be taken as I'm doing you a favor as a mentor and you're just someone who's going to follow me around like a puppy because it should, it's a, it should be an, um, a, a two-way street. Oh, yeah, it should 100%. be an equal relationship. I can learn something from you and you can learn something from me. It just, you know, that, that's, I think that's how you're gonna achieve it. Yeah, no, I agree with that. So I would say both parties then. Yeah, should be equally informed as to, okay, uh, doesn't matter who we are or where we came from in this conversation, we're going to be educated on the language. And this comes back to why I say we don't have a language in a safe space. Mm. And so, so mentorship's great. But if you don't have language in a safe space, then how do you even talk about this stuff? What uh, what role corporate culture plays in employee engagement and satisfaction? I'm I'm, I'm sure you're going to say huge, but elaborate. <laughs> huge. Yeah. Full stop. Okay. <laughs> that was a quick answer. No, it it's huge. It's absolutely everything. So a culture. Let's not overcomplicate it though. I think culture is simply a fancy way of saying how we do things around here, right? Mm -hmm. And how we do things around here defines defines the kind of society that you have and, and make no mistake, your business, regardless, regardless of its size, is its own little society in some way. And in fact, you spend more time there than you do out in actual society. So mm -hmm. get real, right. it, is, it, it, is, it is a society that you are part of and the norms associated with that uh, are real and the pressures associated with that are real. Um, the urge to conform, that's what we do. We want to be liked. We want to fit in. All of that matters. And so when you talk about engagement, the definition of engagement, I've heard a number of them. 
a simplistic version, the most simplistic version had to do with how do you as an employee choose to spend your discretionary time? So for example, if you've got a 40 hour work week and you manage to get your work done in 20 hours because you're super effective and efficient, then what do you choose to do with the other half of the week? Mm-hmm. And so, um, I mean, a place like Google would, would say, you know what, that's up to you. Do whatever you want. Pick a cause, experiment, try something new. And then people there would have full license to go try and experiment, get together with other employees and, and come up with a new idea. So all that's great. But what if somebody says, you know what? I'm, I've done my work. I'm good here. I'm going to start a little side gig. <laughs> uh, uh, if there's, a, there's a, a series of books out there. Um, started with the four-hour work week. Uh, it was Tim Ferriss. Okay. So he advocated in this whole thing. He said, you know what? Just get your work done in four hours. And you can. So his whole lesson was get it all done in four hours because you can. And then turn your attention to more life-enhancing endeavors with the rest of the time. And he actually personally started up a whole other business while he was working at this one place. He got it all done, got everything's handed in in time. His, his, uh, his employer loved him. But in reality, he was starting a, a million-dollar business on the side. And I go, well, that's great. Good for him. And kind of the definition of a disengaged employee <laughs> Right. <laughs> it's kind of, okay, well, you, you lost out. That company that he worked for lost out on somebody who could have launched a whole new line of business for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and this person clearly had a lot of competence. Uh, Tim Ferriss, is, is, he's an incredible mind. He's a little bit wacky, but he's, he's so interesting. So that, that's one basic definition is what do people choose to do with their, their uh, discretionary time? Uh, and so the culture would say, like, if you worked at a large governmental organization, um, you might be in a situation like a, a good buddy of mine. He, he, I was just talking to him last night. He works for, he used to work for a, a government organization in the States. And they cared very much about you show up from nine to five and you must stay in your cubicle. You're actually not allowed to leave your cubicle except for short bathroom breaks. That is like a factory assembly line type of. Thing. That's what it is. It's yeah. inhuman. Like it's totally, it's totally dehumanizing. Uh, but it, I'm telling you, it exists today, which is shocking. But it mm-hmm. does. But it's the norm. So how do you even buck that? So that's where culture starts to become the thing. Where if you're embedded within a culture that says, "Thou shalt," plug, um, you know clock the time at nine to five and do specifically that thing. Um, you're not allowed to uh, go outside of a, a, an approved pattern of behavior. Then you're kind of stuck and there's no way to tap into the vast pool of talent that is your employees that are largely untapped. Mm. That sort of brings me to my next question. How do you, how do you manage to have a high-performing team or company even engaged and engaged, happy employees? Is that even possible? Well, I would like to think it is. Otherwise, you've taken the wind out of my sails. <laughs> <laughs> it's the great hope. I, 
I've seen some companies personally do really well on that front. There was a client of mine um, not too long ago that I would put up as a model of, of strong behavior. I'm still in contact with their retired CEO um, and we're still good friends because we, we developed, we were of like mind and we developed uh, a camaraderie because we believed in the, in, in not dehumanizing the business. Mm-hmm. And so it was about let's, let's not pretend we're a social club because we're not, this is a business. We're still here to make money. Mm-hmm. We should still be looking at our metrics and talk about accountability. We should be clear on consequences. And at the same time, we need to also be thinking about our conduct and how we deliver on the business deliverables. So if someone delivers on their business deliverables, but did it in a way that was that showed um, that they weren't consistent with the company's values, they would not be rewarded in the same way as somebody else who did. And, the, and so those consequences were real. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was regular discussion about the values of the organization. So people there felt like they were part of a thing, a society, a family, if you will. And they trusted in the leadership to be doing the right thing. And the way they did this wasn't magic. So that's what's important to realize is a lot of this stuff has nothing to do with magic. It is starting at the top, recognizing that there are interrelationships and dependencies across the various departments in an organization. Understanding when to be less flexible and when to be more flexible in that interdependency. So in terms of less flexible, we're talking about uh, command and control situations where there's a crisis by all means, like some, some organizations run on crisis mode all the time and, and they can never make progress because that's a specific mode of operation for a specific problem that you're solving for. Something's on fire. That is the appropriate way to run your organization when it's on fire. But when it's not on fire and you're thinking about the future and planning, then you've got to flex the way your team works. And this is the thing that companies do really poorly. I found that people don't pay any attention to how do we actually interact? How do we make decisions together? Mm. How do we know when to switch up our play? Right? You know, good teams, whether it's hockey or volleyball or what have you, you know, like when you're out of system in volleyball, good teams know how to snap back into system or improvise in a way that involves great communication so that you know where you need to be and you can, ex- you can kind of have some expectation of how you're going to recover. So we've, we basically have a situation where you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The good teams have great communication, but what does that mean? It means no ego. It means uh, clarity of thought. It means trusting the other person to be where you need them to be. And, and knowing that, you know, this isn't about whacking people over the heads. Yes, we might make a mistake on this one, but we're going to learn from it. So all those things that are in sports that we all take for granted, you know, you as a volleyball player, you know, very well what I'm talking about here. Yeah. And, and, and 
for the rest of the nation that loves hockey, they know what I'm talking about, right? You know, if you do that, there's, there's no way to, you just can't win on a sustained basis. You might win the game here or there. So in business, what really, what really gets me every time is why do business leaders think that this is any different than sport? And they do think it's different than sport. And they have a thousand reasons and excuses for saying, well, no, this isn't like a sport. You know, we, we don't have rules in this game like a sport does. And we don't have a limited number of players and positions. And, and I would argue, you know, that's because you choose not to operate that way. And, and it's actually a choice to be disordered. As opposed to making a, a very explicit choice to say, we're going to be effective. But that involves taking a hard look at how we operate. And taking a hard look at the trust level on our team. And, and if it's not there, actually choosing to work on it. Now, most teams that I've worked with in the past, sadly, are uncomfortable with these conversations, naturally. It's just not a thing. Um, there are exceptions, which is fantastic. And every time I run into one, I'm, I'm very happy to see it because there's great things ahead for that organization if they can continue to execute on their plan. Uh, and, and on that note, I always say that a solid culture and a great plan and an aligned leadership team of people who may not necessarily be the top of the class, but they execute on that plan and trust in each other, they will deliver a better result time after time then everybody on the team, if everyone on the team was, you know, the grade A person, but they didn't work on their dynamics and talk to each other and actually have difficult conversations about trust and sharing. And you can imagine it, a lot of executives are very uncomfortable opening themselves up to these types of discussions. I have to say, I don't have 200 years of experience under my belt like you, but uh, even out. <laughs> well, I, I thought we were still talking about volleyball, and you can take a spike. Uh, but what I've seen throughout my career, I, I hope you're not going <laughs> to hang up on me. Now. <laughs> um, but throughout the very short career that I've had, I have to say, like the most dysfunctional organizations that I've worked for, they actually had teams that didn't communicate at all. They didn't even know what they were doing uh, within those teams, mm -hmm. let alone what the company was doing as a whole. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, I don't want to be too hard on some of these leaders as well. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the boat with, with a lot of these leaders and I can empathize like in the fog of war when so much is coming at you and there's so much pressure, it's hard to, to separate what's going on and what the priorities are. And you default to your comfort levels. Mm -hmm. you, you basically default to your, your comfort zone of, of action, which is usually, you know, transactional so uh, the engineers and and the cpas of the world they will go super technical and they'll be very comfortable dealing with the intricacies of of the companies and the plans that they're pushing forward and not necessarily touch on on some of the dynamics issues or or deprioritize them and it's understandable that they go there um, even in physics i mean Time, time is defined as 
the increase in entropy. Like that's just the way the universe works. There's more entropy from one moment to the next and it's going to get messier and messier and dysfunction is the norm. So it takes specific actions to reorganize that into something that's orderly and that works. And therefore they go, well, I'm not sure the bang for the buck here. It seems like a lot of work. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure I want to in, uh, waste time on this right now when I'm really comfortable with the numbers over here. Yeah. Or we've I, always done it this way. Or we've always done it this way. And it seems to have worked okay so far, but oops, now we have COVID. And what does that mean? Yeah. It, right. it goes so, back to what you were saying in the beginning, challenging orthodoxies, basically. Yeah, yeah. I think you you can take that lab view of it. So rather than taking a blowtorch to everything, you go right back to a hierarchical power system. So it's not a blowtorch. I think people need to take a lab view of their organizations and the cultures within them and say, let's be really objective here. And let's assume for the moment that this thing doesn't exist or that that thing does exist or that we have a constraint here that we, we didn't anticipate. Really stress test it. And so what COVID's done, I think uh, for us and certainly a lot of other companies, is they force them to be really disciplined about this, to challenge those orthodoxies. So we, we've actually set up sort of a three-pronged structure in dealing with the problem rather than dealing with everything together. So there's you know the day-to-day COVID issues mm-hmm. that require command and control. Let's just fix it. Then there's um, a stress testing group where we sit down several times a week and just hammer through the income statement and make sure we're super tight and clear and understand our forecast and make adjustments. And then we have a future planning group that says, let's think about all the possible outcomes of, of what's going to happen with this scenario, given, given the pandemic situation on the economy and on, on our, uh, well, the whole socio- socioeconomic status of the world. And let's model those out. And let's actually have a wide open conversation about each one of those scenarios and what we need to do to stay on top of them. And which ones of those things should we challenge now? Versus, and which ones can we defer until you know a couple of years down the road? But let's talk about challenging the model. And that's what we've done. Um, and I think we've done a, a reasonably good job of it so far. And we just need to sustain the momentum there. Dominic, it was great talking to you. Uh, thank you so much for sharing your insights with me and my listeners. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Oh, out of time already. Oh, I know. Yeah, we could have gone for like hours. But thanks again. And enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Thanks for inviting me to do this. It was a lot of fun. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to the Authenticity Project. And what's your company's work culture like, by the way? Leave me a message and don't forget to check out my blog at the Authenticity Project Podcast.blogspot.com. And until next time, challenge your orthodoxies. Mm-hmm.